turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We're not going to be in one particular place today, not really, but that's a good place to start. I want to start a series today that I think is going to take most of the year to get through. And I hope that that doesn't sound terrifying to you. <laughs> I hope it'll be interesting uh, as we go through this. This summer was, the whole year was kind of weird, wasn't it? But it really turned uh, not just weird, but kind of scary in the early stages of the summer when the riots began to break, to break out. Um, whether they were, go ahead to the next slide there, Sean. Whether they were the of the Antifa variety or the Black Lives Matter variety, that's an Antifa riot on the left, a Black Lives Matter riot on the right. And they kind of look the same, don't they? Kind of ended in the same spot. You know what? There's been a lot of commentary on what happened this summer. Uh, I think that what we kind of learned is that we're two nations. that it's going to be hard to bridge that gap. We're two nations. One of the many problems facing our society now is that it seems that many in our generation, I say our generation, I, I guess I'm mainly speaking about younger people, but there are older people in this category as well. They have a, a fundamentally different view, a fundamentally different idea of what America is and should be than I do. And that maybe you do. You start talking to them, and they, their, their idea is that America never was, you know, what I think that it was, and therefore it's not what I think it could be, and our visions of the future are different, too. I mean, if, if they're, you know, if they could put America in a blender and then make it into, their, into what they wanted, it would look way different than what I would want it to look like. I don't know about you. How did they come to that? You ever thought about that? I think there's, like, like most complex problems, there's not one reason. There's a lot of reasons. But I think one of the, obviously, there's a lack of biblical instruction. And, you know, people say, you know, I think sometimes a little bit simplistically, people want to blame everything on uh, no more prayer in schools in 19, what was it, 63? Something like that, I think. Before my time. So I have to read the history books to figure that stuff out. But, uh, and if I'm taking a shot at you or people, maybe I am, just a little bit. But, uh, you know, yeah, kicking God out of school uh, in, in the absence of prayer is, was certainly a problem. I think another problem was a lack of evangelistic unction among evangelical believers. People like us that say the most important thing a person can ever do is trust Christ for salvation, and yet we don't ever tell anybody. Uh, that's a problem. Because when we don't tell anybody, then people don't get saved, and then the world goes to hell, and we wonder why. I think that's a problem. But I think there's another reason, too. I think it's because we failed as a culture to pass down the basic values that our forefathers lived by. Uh, I dare you. Ask somebody younger than 40 what the Declaration of Independence says. 
You might be surprised by the answers or just the blank stares that you get. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not taking a shot at young people here. I'm taking a shot at my generation and the generation that raised me because a baby only teaches or only learns what you teach them. Uh, what is the Constitution? What does it actually say? There is all kinds of arguments in the world about this is unconstitutional. And people don't even know what that means anymore. It has been wrenched beyond recognition. The Bill of Rights, what is that? Most people could not even begin to tell you. Mostly forgotten and largely unimportant to most people. They'd rather know who the masked singer is. More important to know who's behind the mask than what our Constitution says. In Christianity, now that was a little, you can go to the next slide there, Sean. That was a little bit about our nation. And I just wanted to set up the series. How does moral rot set in? It's when you forget. It's when you forget. In Christianity, in the church, this process of passing on information. By the way, Buck, don't take this the wrong way. Parents, you must take control of the education of your children. I'm not saying don't send them to school. I know some people might say, oh, you're homeschooling, so you're taking a shot. I'm not taking a shot. I'm saying whatever they learn at school, you better know what they're learning. And because ultimately your kids belong to you, not to the state. Right? Know what they're learning and where it's weak. I, I, if you, if you learned that your kids were not learning math, what would you do at home? you teach them math. Well, in Christianity, the process of passing on information in a systematic way is called catechism or a catechism. Just like in our nation, we failed just as a society. I'm not blaming schools. I'm not blaming the government. I'm just saying we failed. We failed to pass along the the values of our culture, of our founding fathers and mothers. Don't want to leave anybody out. Well, the church, I think, has done the same thing. I think the church has failed. Uh, I'm glad I had a handheld mic. I forgot to bring up one of my props so I can walk in here and get it. Sam's going to recognize this. I use this word catechism. This is a little book. That actually Natalie used when she was a kid. So it's only a couple hundred years old. Uh, I'm glad she's not in here to hear that. It's called uh, Elementary Bible Truths Handbook. This is a, a rudimentary catechism. And uh, it starts off with questions like, who made you? God made me. It, it's a question and answer format. And it's created... It sounds like for children, but it's not really for children. It's for believers. Uh, and in learning this, we're on what number now, Salem? 80? 85? We might be above that. Maybe you were in the 90s or earlier hundreds. There's all these questions, and they basically have it memorized. It's not perfect. And as parents, we haven't done a good enough job. We've kind of dropped the ball a little bit here lately. Um, go to the next picture there, Sean. The, in the early church, 
the, the church fathers, I'm talking about the first century. So Jesus died what year? Roughly. 33 AD. I mean, we don't know exactly, but let's say it was 33 AD. Then he, rise, then he rises from the dead, and he ascends back to heaven. Within 50 years, the church fathers had produced a document very similar to this. This is a first century document called the Didache. And that just means the teaching. It was produced by the 12 apostles. And it was their attempt to, to, to summarize and to put together the Christian faith in a way that was palatable for people. Because, you know, it sounds good to say, hey, Christian, this is your handbook. But boy, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you should read this. You should read it cover to cover. You should learn it. And ultimately, it is your um, responsibility. But wouldn't you like to have some crib notes? Wouldn't you like to have a cheat sheet? That's what that was. Did okay. This. That's all it is. It's a cheat sheet. The word catechize just means to instruct orally, to make somebody hear you. So the early catechisms, what they did is they just stood and they asked questions and then they gave them the answer and said, now repeat the answer back to me. That's what you do with little children, right? And that's why people think of catechisms as being for little people. For little people, but there's not. Because when a people forgets, bad things happen. And when you don't teach children, those children become adults and then they don't even know what to teach their kids. And that's the situation we're in Today, when a people forgets, cultural rot sets, cultural rot sets in and is followed by destruction. This actually happened in the Old Testament one time. 350 years after David ruled the United Kingdom in righteousness, it had long since split apart. And evil men who should have known better uh, started to inherit the throne. And they led God's people into spiritual darkness. One of the last good kings was a guy named Hezekiah. But his son, and Hezekiah, man, you can read about him. He was righteous. I mean, he led the people into spiritual reform. He, he was a man of prayer, a man of godliness. But his son, total 180. A guy by the name of Manasseh. This guy was so bad. I don't know why. His father was so godly. You ever wondered, godly parents, why didn't my kids turn out right? It might not be all your fault. <laughs> They are responsible too, right? They are responsible too. Hezekiah, godly man, I'm sure he raised his son in righteousness, but Manasseh was so evil, so wicked, that he actually set up idols in the holy place of the temple. It was after Manasseh that God said, all right, I'm done. These people are going into exile. Uh, but Manasseh's grandson, 84 years later, found a book. A book that was left in a dusty corner of the temple. The book was the law of God. Probably a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. And Josiah said, what is this book? It had been 84 years. They didn't even know what it was. Hardly. And they read it. And Josiah instituted reforms. And they got the people right back with God. But what would happen if they forgot again? And we know that they did. Unfortunately, this has happened in the church. In 2014, the Pew Research Group asked professing evangelicals between the ages of 25 and 35 
Um, you can go to the next slide, Sean. What they believed about certain issues. You know, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? Among their findings, 35% of professing evangelicals who at the time were in their, let's just say early 30s, late 20s, believed abortion should be fine and legal. 30? That's a, that is a full third. Not just of the world, professing Christians. Not just professing Christians, but professing evangelical Christians. These are supposed to be the conservatives, right? 51% affirm same-sex marriage. Not just, I don't have a problem with it, but it's a good thing. 41% want bigger government and more services. Now, guys, I'm here to tell you, that is not just a political thing. The Bible has something to say about self-governance, providing for your own family, not relying on other people. Why is it that a whole swath of Christians can say that? Well, it's because they have forgotten or were never taught what the Bible said. 55, yeah, these numbers are bad. And I'm saying that if the church had done a better job of training, catechizing people through the years, we probably would not be in this awful position that we're in today. So what has our training plan in the church been for years? Let's say the last hundred years. What's the training plan been? So we used to have stuff like training union, right? And GAs and RAs. GAs, RAs. We used to have stuff like that. Our, our, our plan today seems to be we're going to go to Sunday school, we're going to go to church, and we'll kind of see what happens. Would you run a business that way? You would not. Would you run your 401k that way? We need to be more intentional in our training. We need to. And there are real benefits to stuff like this, these, these catechisms that I showed you. You ever, go to the next slide there, Sean. You ever uh, put together a jigsaw puzzle? Let's say you got a, you, you know, you get one of those little ones that five-year-olds do. Those are easy. They get like ten pieces. You better not struggle with that one, guys. I'm coming after you if you struggle with that one. But if you get one of those big thousand-piece puzzles, you're like, man, where do I even begin? So what do you do? You look at something. What do you look at? You look at the top of the box. And you say, well, I got these pieces over here, and they sort of look like... That, and you find your corners, right? You find your corners. These are the, the corner of a puzzle, the, the top, the edges of the puzzle. You always do those first. Why? They're the easiest parts. They're like the pig you can hold on to. You say, even if I get nothing else done, I'm going to get that part done. And once you get that done, it's easier to fill in the rest, especially if you have the top of the box. That's what stuff like this is. How many Christians, if I, I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but what is the Bible about? What does the Bible say about climate change? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about transgenderism? What does the Bible say about X, Y, Z? And the reason I think we as a culture are just listless and moving with the wind and the waves is because we have forgotten that there is a box top that we can look at and say, wait a minute, 
I might not have all the answers. I might not have the puzzle completely completed. But I know this much right here. I know where the corners are. And that's all a catechism does. It gives you the corners, the clean edges. Here's another reason. Next slide, Sean. What is that? Who knows what that's a picture of? Look at that. One of you history books. What is that a picture of? Out. If, if it's unclear a little bit, those are bodies. They're not alive. Does that give you a hint? Who said it? Jim Jones. Who was Jim Jones? <laughs> Can we be more specific? There's lots of idiots, Janice. Uh, and you're looking at one sometimes. Um, Jim Jones was a cult leader who founded Jonestown. And if you've ever heard the expression, they're just drinking the Kool-Aid, well, that's where it comes from. All those people died because they followed a cult leader. And do you know what he based his beliefs on? Same book that you base your beliefs on. And those people followed them, followed him to their graves. Why? Because they listened to a man who was using the word of God to deceive them. You need to know where the corners are. So that when a crazy guy comes along and says, the Bible says, you're like, wait a minute. That's not what the top of the box looks like. I might not have it all figured out, but I know that that's not what it looks like. So with that as a setup, <laughs> that's not even the sermon really. <laughs> That's a setup for the rest of the year, okay? I hope you will remember that as we keep going through this. I might remind you every now and then. I want to take a look just at the first three questions in the catechism. And they are as follows. Who made you? Guys, the world has forgotten the answer to that question. It might seem elementary to us. And it is, so this is going to be a short sermon probably, but who made you? Secondly, what else did God make? Because it's not all about you or me. And three, why did God make you and all things? This is where it starts. So number one, who made you? God made you. Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27 say the following. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over their livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now guys, there's a lot of more problems in the world that would be solved if we would all just agree on those terms. Right? Think about all the issues that we struggle with as a society. Whether it be marriage, whether it be gender, gender identity, um, Self-ownership. <laughs> There's a lot of problems. You know, one thing, it, I, I will say this. The Bible just assumes this point. What is the very first verse in the Bible? 
In the beginning, God. In the beginning of what? Well, in the beginning of existence, in the beginning of time. Even before that, we learn later. God did something. Now, in April, if my schedule pans out, I will address some of the questions surrounding evolution. One of the things, now I don't think a lot of people in here struggle with it, but here's the problem. There may be some people here that struggle with the idea, or maybe you've even, maybe even believe it, hook, line, and sinker, that uh, evolution is a fact. Uh, I'll, I'm going to dispute that in April, hopefully. But the problem is, even if somebody believes it in this church, they're probably not going to come forward with that information. Because you know how I feel about it. So I have learned, even though I feel like I'm an approachable guy, I'm not going to bite anybody's head off. Have I bitten anybody's head off in here? I don't think so. Chatty? Okay, well, maybe. <laughs> uh, most people are nervous about approaching the pastor on an issue that, you know, I don't think he's going to agree with me. Can I just say, if there's an issue that you feel like you want to bring it to me and talk to me about, and you say, you're like, ah, I don't know if he's going to agree with me, bring it to me anyway. I will not think less of you. I promise you that. So we're going to talk about evolution and theistic evolution and those types of things in April. But understand this in no uncertain terms. And I'll just say this for now. Where there seems to be, and I say seems to be, because is there ever a contradiction between the truth and the word of God? Never. There are seeming contradictions. There's never a real contradiction. Where there seems to be a divergence between what the science clearly says, and I'm putting that in quotation marks for those of you that are outside, and what the Bible clearly teaches, you always, always, always side with the Bible. Always. And I'm just going to throw this out here as the, as the best example. What would science say about the possibility of resurrection? This is the easiest example for us. What does it say? It is impossible. Why? We don't even know. Science lesson, but we've never witnessed it for one in our lifetime anyway. Somebody did, right? But you just don't see dead things spontaneously coming to life. Once they're dead, they're dead, they're gone. So if you believe the science, can you really be a Christian? Not really. And yet that's where I say there's a seeming divergence between what science clearly teaches and what the Bible clearly teaches. What does the Bible clearly teach? Did God make you? Yes, he did. Now, you came from your parents, but where'd they come from? And then you go back far enough, where'd they come from? And it all started. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So number one, who made you? Now there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, preaching material packed into that question. If somebody else made you, then who do you belong to? You don't belong to yourself. Your time is not your own. Your money's not your own. Your resources are not your own. Your children, uh-oh, <laughs> even my five, they're not my own. They belong to the one that made them. 
What else did God make? And the answer is God made all things. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is not just a reference to the stars and the dirt. That is a poetical way of saying the entire universe. Nowadays, we would say the observable universe. If you want to go down a rabbit hole that will blow your mind, start YouTubing how big the universe is. It is unfathomable how big the universe is. And yet the Bible says God made it all. I had Chatty read uh, Job this morning where God himself says, this is what I made. And it's true. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, John says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking specifically of Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. All things. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul reiterates that point. Where he says in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says the following. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible. Paul doesn't leave any category of the creation outside of the creative act of God and in spe specifically, Christ. Now this is no trivial point. If God made all things, just like you, then all things belong to God. Now, you think about how that impacts the way you view the world. That, that should impact how you view the issue of environmental preservation. Pastor Dave, are you saying you're a tree hugger? No, I'm not saying I'm a tree hugger. I had a friend once, though, who, uh, he was big time, you know, and I gotta admit, uh, the Greenpeace people, and they, they kind of annoy me. Because it almost seems like they're worshiping the earth. I don't like that. That's idolatry. It's not just that I don't like it, it's idolatry, right? And I feel like they love the trees more than they love people. But this guy kind of went out of his way to go the opposite direction. He said, I'm going to find the, the truck with the lowest miles per gallon and I'm going to buy that. This, this guy had a lot of money. He said, I'm going to pollute. He, and I don't know if he was I don't know if he was uh, just saying it to own the libs or whatever. <laughs> but that's kind of how he felt about it. Now that's no way to think about the environment. How should Think about this. How should the Bible shape your views on things like the environment? Climate change. Littering. Why is littering wrong? Would it be wrong even if there were no laws against it? There would be. Why? Because God made this world. And he says to Adam, I'm not going to make you turn there. He says to Adam, listen, I put you here to take care of it. Christians ought to be responsible, godly environmentalists. Now that's just one issue. The Christian who understands the Bible knows that since God made the natural world and commanded us to take care of it, we must not harm nature unnecessarily. Not for the same reason, though. Not for nature's sake. Not because the tree has feelings. I remember one time reading about this woman that said she, she was one of these 
animal rights activist that said we shouldn't eat meat. Of the devil, I'm telling you. Of the devil. I'm just kidding. If, you, if that's your position, whatever. I probably ought to eat less meat. I definitely ought to eat less sugar. Anyway, she said, this is a quote. You're not, well, you probably will believe it because people are crazy. Pigs have feelings and aspirations too. Now, a pig might have feelings. I don't know what aspirations they have. Maybe a bigger mud hole. Maybe a little more food in the belly. We love the creation, not for the creation's sake, not because the creation, you know, not for some Mother Earth reason, but because it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. So we can't sully it just because we want to. So a conservative Christian environmentalist, this is just one grid to view this through, right? I'm not, this is not a sermon about environmentalism. This is a sermon that says, if we thought rightly about the Bible, it would impact public policy. This is not just a matter of politics. This is a matter of, wait a minute, what does the Bible say about this issue? It completely transforms the way you understand and view the world. Who made you? You know what? Let's do this. I ask a question. You answer out loud. You ready? Who made you? God. What else did God make? We, we tell our kids, in order to get credit for the answer, you have to say it exactly right. God made all things. But I'm not going to make you do that. You're not in school. Number three. Why did God make you and all things for his own glory? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because... In my series on evangelism, I preached an entire message on the glory of God. But I will simply say this. 1 Corinthians 10.31, which is the life verse for many people. I don't know if you have a life verse, one that you sort of hang your hat on. Uh, for a long time, mine was 1 Samuel 12.24. Um, I don't really have one now. But... For many people, 1 Corinthians 10.31 is their life verse. And here's what it says. Whether you eat, you could probably finish it for me. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Man, when you say it like that, whether you eat, what more mundane task is there than eating? We do it every day. Whether you drink. Suffice it to say that God created you. Now, do you see how question number three follows in the heels of questions one and two? God made you. Well, what's the obvious follow-up question? Why? Why did he do that? If I found out that the military was building some secret ray gun that could melt the brains of communists, you know, which they probably already have, I mean, let's be honest. Uh... <laughs> You know, a question is, well, why would they do that? Or if you found out that, you know, uh, you know, somebody had, uh, your neighbor had plowed up a big hole in your front yard. The first question you're going to ask is, why'd you do that? Well, why did God make you? Guys, you realize we're actually, we're actually answering the question, what is the meaning of life here? A question that supposedly people have struggled with for thousands of years, yet you don't have to struggle with it. 
Because God made you for a very specific reason. And that reason is to bring him glory. You know, when you get the, this answer, when you get these three questions right, and boy, they do seem elementary, don't they? This is simple. This is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But when you get it, not just here, but it settles those 12 inches or however far it is into your heart. You don't struggle with anxiety as much. Because whatever happens to me, I know that God made me and that I have a purpose in this life. You don't struggle as much with the problem of what am I supposed to do with my life? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Because you know your purpose. You might not know what job you're going to do. That's usually what people mean. But you know, you can bring glory to God no matter what you're doing. In fact, you ought to. In fact, you must do that. I'm just looking out at the crowd here. Well, we got chicken farmers. We got hardware. We got uh, insurance. We got school teachers. We got restaurant owners. We got all kinds of people. Is it pop? We got pastor. Am I glorifying God more by what I'm doing than what you're doing? I'm not. I'm just doing what he told me to do. Literally, that's it. If I didn't do it, I would be disobedient. And if you didn't do what you're doing, if God has called you to do it, you would be disobedient. Why? Because you can bring glory to God no matter what you're doing. Even if you feel like you're a failure. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do. You are designed to shine a spotlight on the perfection of God. Now that does raise the bar a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> when you wake up in the morning, at the top of your to-do list is shine a spotlight on the perfections of God. How I do that is I prepare for my sermons. I visit the sick. I call those that are discouraged. How you do that is, well, what's your daily routine? I'm not saying you have to change it a lot. I am saying you filter it through these three questions. I'm not just going to work this morning because I have to, or well, I won't be able to pay the bills. I'm going to go glorify God today. Boy, that changes the way you view the day, doesn't it? Then Monday mornings aren't so bad. Here's the final thing. This is the last slide there, Sean. God's glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. I, I must give a gospel presentation. Because if someone here is not saved, then this is kind of meaningless. I'm not saying that you have no meaning. I am saying, though, that you cannot give glory to God while you're in an unsaved state. It's impossible. You can't. The Bible says that without faith, it is what? Impossible. It is impossible to please God. And that's what it's talking about. You, you might go to work and do the exact same tasks as this guy over here, but he is not pleasing to God, and you are because you're in faith and he's not. It is that simple. How do you come to faith? Well, the Bible says 
in John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about this at Christmas time, didn't we? And we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father. We read this earlier in Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You can't see God, but you can because He has a perfect clone. It's not, I'm being facetious a little little. But when you see Jesus, this is what he said to Philip. Philip said, this is at the end of his ministry. They've been walking with him for three years. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And that's what religion wants, isn't it? Religion wants an experience with God, something that will transform uh, the worshiper. That's what Philip was looking for, because Jesus was talking weird, and he's like, Lord, look, I don't know how much longer you're going to be here, just show us the Father. And you know what Jesus said back to him? He said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Well, I bet Philip's eyes got big. Then Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know, when you really feel like you just need to see God, when you're in a dark day, when you don't know, you know, God, why have you left me here? What good am I to anybody? You need to see a vision of God at that moment. And all you have to do is look to the scriptures, look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. All of God's perfections are on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God made you and he made all things to believe in Jesus and to live for him. Anything less and you are wasting your life. So, are you ready to make your life count in 2021? I'm sure most of you already are. But as we go through these questions and answers, I hope they will be a blessing to you. I hope that we will become grounded in the faith. Let's set the corners of the box so that we can fill in the picture. Amen.